0: G'day everyone, Dylan from the Newsfighters podcast here and I bet you love listening to Newsfighters almost as much as I love making it but it takes me hundreds and thousands of hours a year to make Newsfighters so I'm calling on you to help support me make the show Please sign up and give me money at patreon.com slash newsfighters I'd really appreciate it Now, on with the show You're listening to the Sands Pants Network. Home of comedy, <laughs> culture, <laughs>
1: adventures,
0: and ghosts.
1: This is News Fighters, where we fight the news so you don't have to. With Dylan Behan.
0: Yes, g'day, fighters. Welcome to News Fighters. I'm your host, Dylan Bain, the Gold Trip of news comedy stick around because later on i chat to comedian and author tom ballard about his new book i'm millennial one snowflake screed against boomers billionaires and everything else i guess after a while i guess i wanted to read a book that summed up the case
2: as to how all that played out in in australia i'd read a lot about the neoliberal turn in the u.s and the uk And, you know, there are these sort of uh, histories of that in Australia, but hopefully I could sort of mainstream it a little bit by swearing, having funny photos of me as a kid and some funny graphs.
0: But first, to the single most important news story. Of the week, if not the year. Good evening. Sirens rang out over Mossman today and warnings roared over loudspeakers. A most unlikely alarm on Sydney's Lower North Shore. Yes, that's right. An alarm went off on Sydney's Lower North Shore. What did this mean? Was someone thinking of attending a public school or voting labour? No. Something was afoot at the zoo. There are two words no zookeeper ever wants to hear. Yes, and those two words are horny giraffes or even worse barnaby's drunk or even worse still barnaby's horny now of course there was only four words on the lips of every australian news outlet last tuesday tonight
2: lions on the
0: loose
1: lions on the loose five lions
2: on the loose. Lions on the loose. It's not very often we get called to lions on the loose. The zoo
0: went into lockdown after five lions managed to escape from their enclosure. Yes, that's right. Finally, a lockdown in Sydney that wasn't caused by an unvaccinated limo driver not wearing a mask. Now, thankfully, this lion fiasco all unfolded during breakfast TV time, which meant we were gifted the insightful analysis of Carl Stefanovic and Koshy. Do them so is it like a
1: jail? sort of is a <laughs> 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 like.
2: very difficult thing for them to try and handle at the time but also it, it just
0: shouldn't happen yes i'm with carl it just shouldn't happen but it did happen, leaving every Australian journalist to ask the world's most obvious question. Tom, how did these lions get out? How did they get out? The bill, do they know how the lions got out? It's unclear exactly how the lions made it out.
2: It's still not clear how the lion and the cubs got out. I'd
0: love to know where they got to and where they were yeah. found and where they were returned to. And exactly. how, scared how? The ze- how scared the zebra would be. Yes, and I've been told that following this, Channel 7 paid the zebra $150,000 for an exclusive Sunday night interview. But finally, they were worked out what was to blame. Taronga Zoo Management
1: has described the cause of the breakout as an integrity issue with the fence. It's been
0: labelled as an integrity issue. They say an initial review has found that it was an integrity issue with a containment fence. Oh, great. It's taken us years and years and a change of government, and we still haven't got a federal integrity commission. How long is it going to take us to get a fence one? Of course, as with any big news event of this stature where there weren't uh, good pictures of the actual event, uh, all the news media could do was go down to the zoo and vox pop people. Of all the days we picked to come to because it's the one that the lions get out. Isn't that great?
2: Have you heard the news? No. Lions had escaped.
0: Oh, have
1: they? I'll have my camera ready just <laughs> Hopefully, in case. <here>. Yeah. <laughs> Take some selfies with some lions. We realised,
0: OK, something's outside. What is it? And they said, oh, it's the lions. So we're like, ooh. <laughs> scary. <laughs> and of course, one of the big reasons the media wound up loving this lion story was it meant they didn't have to talk about that boring interest rate story that was in the news. <laughs>
2: Can I woke up this morning? This isn't what I thought we'd be talking <laughs> no, about today.
0: <tonight>. No, no. <laughs> no, we've
2: certainly moved on from Tom Brady and Giselle, haven't we? <laughs> yeah,
1: and interest rates. <laughs> <to the lions. laughs> Sorry about your big interest
0: rate story, but the... yeah, yeah. No, that's <laughs> right. You know. Hey Reserve Bank, maybe you should release some lions in Martin Place next time there's an interest rate rise. That way the story about the interest rate rise will get pushed way back in the news like it did on Wednesday. Beleaguered borrowers have been hit with a fresh interest rate rise today, certain to strain household budgets even further. The Reserve Bank
1: lifting the cash rate to a nine-year high of 2.85%.
0: Yes, that's right. These days, it's not just the endless floods literally sending Aussie homes underwater. We also have interest rate rises doing it metaphorically. As borrowers feel more squeezed, house prices keep falling. In Sydney, they're down more than 8% over the past year. Wow, 8% down from, oh my God, I could never afford that even if I won the lottery. Good luck, first home buyers. Uh, Impossible is now 8% closer. So anyways, I bet you're wondering, why is the Reserve Bank inflicting all this pain and Aussie homeowners with mortgages.
1: This seventh rate rise in a row is an attempt to keep a lid on inflation.
2: As the RBA board tries to rein in inflation. Fruit and
0: vegetable prices are predicted to surge by 8% over the next two quarters. Inflation is the number one challenge in our economy. It's the number one focus of the government. Yes, the Reserve Bank's plan here is to tackle inflation by taking money out, out of the economy by making people pay more for their mortgages. That means they're less likely to spend money on frivolous things like vegetables, clothes, and haircuts. And all this will eventually lead to prices going down somehow. Great plan, right? What could possibly go wrong? This definitely won't lead to a massive recession and higher unemployment and increased homelessness. Right, Reserve Bank? So, what are the factors driving increasing inflation at the moment? Well, one of the biggest ones is energy prices, which are only going to get worse. Electricity prices are forecast to rise by 20% this year and another 30% next year. Power prices could rise by as much as 50% next year. Gas up 50% over the next year. Electricity 50% over the next two years. Now that's disastrous. Yes, it's so bad it's even going to affect lefties like me who are on 100% renewable electricity. My bill is forecast to go up at least 20% this year, which makes no sense at all because last time I checked the Sun and the Wind haven't suddenly got more expensive. Haven't seen Alan Kohler on the ABC put up a graph about uh, rising sunshine prices. No, no, no. Only important economic issues like, you know, Taylor Swift. And 10 days after it was released, Taylor Swift's *Midnights* has blown the rest out of the water, becoming the most streamed album of all time. And that's finance. That's not finance. That's you trying to look cool to your kids, Alan. Anyways, uh, what's causing all this energy price inflation? Well, if you haven't heard about it, there's a war on. Oil and gas prices have been soaring, pushed upwards by Russia's
1: invasion of Ukraine.
0: The war in Ukraine is having a big impact on energy prices. Inflation is a worldwide problem right now because of a war in Iraq and the impact
1: on oil and what Russia's doing. I mean, excuse me, the war in in Ukraine
0: and uh, I think of Iraq because that's where my son died. Eh, Iraq, Ukraine, same thing. I mean, both were illegal invasions by wannabe empire, so it is easy to confuse them, Joe Biden. Don't worry. Jeez, at least when the OG war crimes mastermind George W. Bush makes the same mistake, he has the honesty to admit it's because he's got old and forgetful. And uh, the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified
1: and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine.
0: (laughs) All right, anyway... uh, (laughs) 75. Uh. (laughs) Anyways, it might seem obvious to you and me that the war in Ukraine is a very bad thing that should end as soon as possible, but it turns out it is leading to increased revenues for energy exporting countries, like, you know... Australia and Saudi Arabia. Seven News can reveal Tuesday's federal budget will include a $100 billion plus revenue windfall, mostly taxes from record coal and gas exports. To be clear, we're benefiting off the back of Putin's war on Ukraine. It is very welcome uh, that we've got this near-term boost in revenue coming from higher commodity prices. But high oil prices have been very good for Saudi Arabia's state-controlled oil company. Its second quarter profit blows away all prior records.
1: Overnight, Saudi Arabia's Aramco said it had made a profit of $42.4 billion over just three months.
0: Wow, $42 billion in three months? That's a lot of bone sores. Meanwhile, the major oil companies like ExxonMobil, BP and Shell have also been making absolutely obscene profits. Now, we're seeing this kind of boom from other energy companies as well. Exxon and Shell recently posted
1: record second quarter earnings. Well, BP is the latest oil major to report near record profits with its second highest quarterly earnings ever. And also announced an additional
0: $2.5 billion share buyback. Yes, good to hear that in these increasingly desperate and impoverished times, that high petrol prices are helping out those in our society who really need it. The shareholders. These obscene profits even grabbed the attention of U.S. President Joe Biden, who's promised to look into taxing the oil companies more. So the president has basically said to big energy companies, you are making windfall profits at the moment as a result of the Russian war with Ukraine. And we, the United States, expect something of that back. Floating a so-called windfall tax on their corporate profits, accusing the companies of war
1: profiteering. And I want to let you I'm going to hear more from me about this when the Congress gets back.
0: Yes, Biden says he'll definitely look at maybe introducing a windfall profits tax when Congress returns after the midterm election. Elections that, you know, the Democrats will definitely win, right? And also, might I note that introducing such attacks definitely won't come back to hurt Democrats if oil companies raise prices in retaliation, right? No chance of that happening. And it's not just the energy companies making a killing out of the war in Ukraine. There's also all the companies that literally make a killing of course i'm talking about the military and defense companies and over on all the tv finance channels the pundits are talking them up like they're a better bet than kanye doing something racist and stupid
2: and you know what i'm talking about i'm talking about groups like the defense contractors thanks to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We are seeing a renaissance in defense spending worldwide. The huge defense company, Lockheed Martin, that is really starting to profit from all of the global conflict that's happening at the moment.
1: The two biggest missile
0: producers are Lockheed and Raytheon. They have, uh, you know, sending missiles, uh, javelins to Ukraine, uh, sending NASAM's air defense systems to Ukraine. So the demand looks very good for both of these guys. And I think the war in, um, Ukraine right now has put a lot of momentum behind these defense stocks. War is good business for parts of the economy.
2: Uh, historically, it doesn't mean the defense contractors cynically want it. Uh, I know a lot of people in these companies and they're as heartbroken by the war in Ukraine as the next person. But yes,
1: war is good business for certain parts of the economy.
0: Yeah, that's right. Business is booming for the defense contractors. I bet over there everyone was like, yeah, pop the champagne, boys. It was a really tough six months there between the end of the war in Afghanistan and the start of the war in Ukraine. But by Joe, we got through it. And look at us now. We're back, baby. Even here in Australia, where we're relatively safe and isolated and a long way away from the war in Ukraine, both sides of politics still are splashing billions of dollars on new military toys, like hypersonic missiles the government has stepped into the global arms race with plans to acquire Australia's first hypersonic missiles missiles
2: that can be fired from the land sea or air and that can travel at least five
1: times the speed of sound
0: senior defense officials admit it's an urgent task because China and Russia are already in front with the advanced technology the reason we invest in all of these things is to create a peaceful environment and a stable environment in our region not one driven by conflict.
2: In this increasingly uncertain and unstable world, we will need to increase Australia's defence spending.
0: Okay, so if we're going to give defence contractors billions of dollars to build us hypersonic missiles, then we must really need them to potentially defend ourselves from China, right? Sam Roggeveen from the Lowy Institute. Australia does not need the ability to hit China with a weapon in order to defend itself. In fact, I think it would make Australia more vulnerable, and I think a weapon like that would actually be very destabilising in a crisis. And these hypersonic missiles are already costing us at least $3.5 billion. Meanwhile, raising JobSeeker to above the poverty line would cost us only $12 billion a year. But, you know, they don't go brum-brum. Also, I reckon one reason that uh, politicians seem endlessly addicted to increasing defence spending is that, well... Turns out lots of people own shares in defence contractors. Hell, in Australia, you probably own shares and then without even realising it, check with your super fund. And in America, lots of politicians do too. Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia records show she bought stock in the defense contractor Lockheed
1: Martin just one day before the invasion started. Our team here at CNBC dug through financial disclosures from members of Congress and found more than a dozen reported trades, either their own or by their spouse or child, in companies that are directly affected by the war.
0: Okay, so with politicians, governments, corporations and shareholders all addicted to the billions of dollars they're making off the war in Ukraine, don't expect it to end anytime soon. Or wars themselves for that matter. In fact, I'd say there's a good reason everyone in government and the media loves talking up a future conflict with China, and that's because
1: War is good business for parts of the economy.
0: Which, to quote one renowned expert who inadvertently slept next to a gang of lions on the Loosener Zoo this week, feels a little bit Ooh, scary. <laughs> G'day everyone, Dylan from the Newsfighters podcast here And just a reminder, if you want our episodes ad-free and released early As well as monthly bonus episodes Sign up to our Patreon at patreon.com newsfighters Or if you can't afford an ongoing monthly contribution to help me keep this show going You can buy me a coffee or several at buymeacoffee.com slash newsfighters And don't forget to sign up for our free mailing list at newsfighters.com Now, on with the show! Alright, joining me now on Newsfighters is my old boss, Comedy Extraordinaire Tom Ballard, <laughs> author of the great new book I Millennial, One Snowflake's Screed Against Plague, Boomers, Billionaires, and Everything Else. It's that now. Tom, tell me about the title of the book. Is there a message oh, in the title here? I didn't quite pick <laughs> it up.
2: <laughs> it's very subtle. You have to be really smart. Does it have plague in the in the copy that you have? Or no? Oh, did I plague look at an
0: old? Did I look at an old press? Old, release?
2: Plague is old. Yes, it used to be. Oh, this book okay. was supposed to be released in twenty twenty one. it was supposed to be much more responsive to the COVID pandemic. Remember right. in twenty twenty how everything was going to change and like yes, everything was changing around us and like wow yeah we're going to have this new normal and like capitalism's going to fall uh, thanks to this this disease exposing all the ways our society is broken. Um, turns out that didn't happen. And my book got delayed. And so now it's just like, oh, yeah, COVID was bad, but it's just a bad event in a series of terrible things that have happened to the world over the past 40 or 50 years. Yeah.
0: That's right, because I did, last time I interviewed you was beginning of uh, 2021 and you were just, uh, you were writing the book then and uh, and reading it, (laughs) reading it. No, there's so much research in it. Is this, is this what held it up? There's so much, like so many (laughs) facts in it. I just want to like steal and mention to people.
2: (laughs) Oh, please. Yes. God, I hope
0: it's. Like. uh, It's,
2: uh, it's. it's It's penetrable. Uh, yes, because researching it, yes, I, a big part of the book was like the scope of the book just went crazy big. And I started writing about everything and trying to explain everything from um, quantitative easing to uh, yeah, <laughs> the, uh, the, the way that balanced budgets work to the climate crisis to the Australian housing market. And that all got a little bit unwieldy. And then during the second lockdown in Melbourne last year, in the second half of 2021, I just, I went a little bit crazy, as many other Victorians did. And I just could not get out of bed to write anything. So that also pushed the whole thing back a bit. Um, And then after, and then coming back to it, being like, okay, I've got to definitely put out this book this year. Let's go back to the basics. Talk about the big picture. Make it funny. Yep. You're not an academic. Just sort of, you know, tr- as much as possible, boil down the broader facts to tell the the, the bigger story. That was the the, the new move.
0: Yeah. Now I'm I'm about halfway through and I'm I'm loving it so far. It feels almost like a funny. Uh, don't take this the wrong way, or, but n- like Naomi Klein, it kind of is a journey of how we <laughs> Holy got. Fuck. No, That's it's great. a it's a well researched journey of kind of how everything got so screwed up. Like. Yeah. And the, what I'm taking it from it, uh, and uh, is this kind of the journey, is that somewhere along the way, the government and everything got taken over by this lazy class of landlords and shareholders who just want to sit around <laughs> and make money for nothing. Is that is that true? Is that kind of is that true? That's the message I'm t- I'm feeling like is in well, there. I'm I, only halfway through. Say that,
2: yeah, look. That's been pretty inherent in the whole humanity thing for hundreds of years now. Yes. And it was much more explicit. When we were in feudalism, it was much more explicit. Everyone was like, okay, yes. these are the lords and nobilities and the rest of us are serfs. And the nobility had no problem with saying very explicitly that you are pieces of shit and your entire life should be based around serving our needs. Yes. Then you have the Industrial Revolution and, you know, the the way that factories sort of changed the modes of production completely and then it all gets a a little bit weird right and this mm. this illusion uh that people that the class doesn't exist anymore by the time we get to sort of the 20th century people seem to seriously think that class has just disappeared now and we're just living in this wonderful world in which you know hard work and liberal debate can sort of fix all these problems and can paper over all the incredible um discrepancies between the rich and the poor and mm. We can have democracy and democracy will solve everything. So the people, every three years, the people will be able to vote and that will solve all the problems. That will perfectly reflect the majority will of things. And that's the way that we go about organising society and that, that, and nothing else needs to change. Mm. And I think certainly... After World War II, you've got this two decades of incredible growth and prosperity. You've got massive government intervention. You've got a very high tax economy. This is all across the West. You've got inequality falling. You've got uh, uh, living standards rising. You've got really strong unions. And, you know, the general acceptance of the idea that the government is responsible for doing things like building houses and finding people's jobs. That all goes to shit in the 70s, economic crisis, this thing called stagflation, both rising unemployment and rising inflation Mm -hmm. at the same time, economic chaos, and the old neoliberals who uh, hated all that government intervention that was going on during the post-war boom, they're there ready for all the solutions, saying, hey, well, obviously what we need to do is fuck off all this government intervention, and we need to hand over as much as possible to the wonders of the free market. That will make us all happier and, and wealthier. And Hasn't cue it the deal well? re- revolution, and it's worked out great, and <laughs> and here we are today, yeah.
0: But I definitely feel like um, things have got worse in the last thirty years. I just read the chapter on housing affordability, big issue on on this show, a big issue I care about a lot because uh, I don't feel like anyone. Uh, I did the maths the other day. Someone on the median wage uh, forty eight thousand. I plugged that into a mortgage calculator with the interest hmm. rates going up. They can only borrow two hundred ninety thousand. Guess what? You can buy in Sydney for two hundred ninety thousand dollars. <laughs> Uh, Nothing. None, zero. <laughs> yes. Zero. We're at a point where the average, the median income earner in Australia cannot afford housing, which is no, no, so I- so fucked up. So fucked up.
2: Well, you definitely, I mean, you definitely can't do it by yourself. Obviously, as yes, no. yes, you say, on that wage, you can do it by yourself. So everyone has to, pretty much pa- everyone has to- Partner per- up. Have, You need to be a partner. You need to have yep. two incomes in order to get stuff together. The average- uh, length of time it takes to save up a deposit yes. for the median house has gone from six years yes. to more than a decade now. Student uh, debt on top average... of that
0: is making it worse. Yeah, yeah. totally.
2: And and that's yeah. a big thing. People don't realize like with hex debt, people, like banks factor in your hex debt as a liability when you're applying for a mortgage, right? So people mm. say, oh, it's a hex. There's a great loan. It doesn't affect people's lives at all. It's like no, fuck off. In the exact same <laughs> decade that you're trying to get your life together to buy a house, you've got this huge liability against you. And if you're you know if you're one of the I think there's there's tens of thousands of people with more than a hundred thousand dollars in in hex debt, you know, stacked up against mm. them. That's absolutely going to count against you when you say to the bank, "Hey, hey, can I please have some money?" Man, I had trouble getting a bank loan. Okay, now mm, I do mm. perfectly fine. I'm all right. And TV's Tom re- Ballard.
0: TV TV's boy.
2: Tom- <laughs> occasionally TV. I've been cancelled from all sorts of networks. Okay, <laughs> yes, and. And, it, you know, and a uh, decent income, had decent amount of savings. But in the middle of the pandemic, the ethical bank that I went to to say, hey, can you help me, you know, give money so I can buy this apartment with apartment. my brother, okay? Uh, and they sort of said, no, we, didn't, we don't believe that you have a real job and <laughs> you'll be able to earn money, which is fair enough. Like, it is not a real job. But also, you know, I have made money in the past. So, yes, it's, it's crazy. And, again, that dates back to the 70s and 80s when we said the market would solve everything. And so you deregulate the financing, the financial and banking sector. That's what Hawke and Keating did. Let in all these foreign banks, you know, uh, uh, strip back the regulations on lending institutions, privatise the Commonwealth Bank so that all these major financial institutions are all about making profit for their shareholders. They're not about, you know, facilitating the social good of people being able to own their own homes.
0: Yes, and you, met, like you point out guys. in the book, great statistic that uh, in the Al- Albo's cabinet, Albanese's cabinet, they own an average of two point seven properties each. So, which <laughs> what side do you think they're on here? Yeah.
2: <laughs> this is—I mean, they're not even pretending anymore. You got to respect this. Like they've, yes. I guess, but, but, in twenty eighteen, the
0: label, labo- a- labels solve everything. Albo's, the, in. yes,
2: they're on our, they're on our side. Yes, no, uh, one, no one will behind. be left behind. <laughs> <laughs> A better future. For who,
1: Alvo? For who?
2: But I mean, this is it. Like, you know, Jason Clare was the shadow housing minister, the spokesperson for Labor during the election campaign. And... You know, they've just, since since the loss in 2019, when they were talking about changing like profit, uh, negative gearing and the capital gains tax, like they've just given up on all of it. Yep. They're just like, housing prices need to keep going up. It's good that they do that. No one wants that prices of houses to go down, which is like, fuck you. People absolutely want that to happen, <laughs> particularly when they can't afford a house. Uh, you know, landlords shouldn't be demonized. It's people getting ahead. That's aspiration even though there are some people who are hoarding properties during a housing crisis and explicitly driving up the cost of housing in this country. That's their whole, you know, Mm. Operation (laughs) Mirandai.
0: Modus operandi. Modus operandi. Thank you. I did it. I love words. Yeah, there you (laughs) go.
2: I mean, there was that guy, I don't know if you heard that guy, according to Ben Fordham's show, who has 283 investment properties in in Queensland.
0: And even Ben Fordham's going, complaining about the land tax. (laughs)
1: So I'm paying nearly $7,000 of property per year in land tax. Can I ask you out of interest
0: how many you've got, David? How many rental properties do you own?
1: Well, um, okay, 283.
0: 283 rental properties? Yeah. What? I've worked hard for that. (laughs) Yes.
2: And he worked so hard for his 283 investment properties. Like... Like this is it? Like just just that that change of deregulating the financial sector and encouraging investors to get in, get um, involved uh, to, to flood into the market has absolutely driven up prices as has low interest rates. But this this whole financialization and commodification of housing, even though housing is like a human need that we all it's need and all sort of require to survive. Yes, it's a home. <laughs>
0: It's, it's just completely, completely
2: changed the political economy of of Australia.
0: Um, uh, back to the book, though. What, overall, what was your aim? I know uh, the, it was it was it to um, you weren't trying to do sign language by Seinfeld and just capture your stand up thing. It's, it was trying to be <laughs> a, a more. It's not you didn't just write down your jokes. <laughs> what, what, what was the aim with the book, and what, how did you decide what topics to cover?
2: Yeah, it was. I I, I was just I wanted to write the book that I wish that I had been able to read you know, gotcha. six years ago. So gotcha. yeah, so 20 up until 2016 and people may know I've always been a bleeding heart lefty. who was a progressive person. I voted greens and I was a good person. And you know, why can't everyone be nice and do the, listen to science. And I was a little bit naive, I suppose. 2016 happens. Trump gets elected. My mate, my mind gets blown. Like how the fuck did this happen? What's going on? Who's this Bernie Sanders guy? Mm-hmm. What's he talking about? That starts a journey to, you know, go down the rabbit hole of, wow, capitalism seems to be the, the underlying cause of, Almost every problem in our society Turns out economics is actually really, really important And it's not just people being greedy About money, like that that, that shit does actually matter Then you start reading history and you go Oh wow, people have been thinking and talking about this Forever and actually it's at the heart of Almost every political debate that we've experienced Anyway, so I keep going down That rabbit hole and then I guess after a while, I guess I wanted to read a book that summed up the case as to how all that played out in mm. in Australia. I'd read a lot about the neoliberal turn in the US and the UK. And, you know, there are these sort of uh, histories of that in Australia, but hopefully I could sort of mainstream it a little bit by mm. swearing, having funny photos <laughs> of me as a kid and some funny graphs and pulling in an audience, I guess, who are interested in my stuff, who might be keen to see this whole case laid out. Um and then there were originally way more chapters, but again, the book was going too long and I was researching too much and going... experiencing (laughs) mental illness so i narrowed it down to the the six that the ones that i think are the most fundamental when it comes to the way the millennials have been screwed um, by this neoliberal capitalist system and they are work housing education privatization which again is something that we don't talk about enough wealth inequality just the massive gap between the rich and the poor and the way the rich run everything and of course the fact that the earth is on fire and we're all going to die it's a very funny book
0: is uh, I feel like the the title will be putting boomers off. I think boomers need to read this book. Like have you have you had any feedback from uh, <laughs> older audiences or, or or labor people or liberal people is anyone had any feedback from them?
2: Not as yet. No, I'm really interested to see how how folks out there go for it. I reckon probably a lot of Anyone who pays attention to my podcast, series Danger, which is all about the Greens or my regular tweeting about how much labor sucks and how the Greens are good, probably won't be too surprised by the conclusions <laughs> reached in this book. Boomers, indeed. It is a screed against boomers. Uh, and, you know, that's similar to the kind of comedy we did on Tonightly. We had mm-hmm. Boomer Week where we had a lot of yeah. made of fun. I did a lot of stand up talking about how, you know, waiting for boomers to die.
0: I, I, um, but I know a lot of boomers who still don't own their own home. You know, Yeah so, totally. So we, it, my, my mom often gets mad at me when I rail against boomers because she's it's like, like "Was it yes. me? I was <laughs> yes. at the protests," <laughs> you know. Yes. But uh. Yes. <laughs> But it's, <laughs> Very good so point. Now, it's the economic. If system. we can have our
2: cake and eat it too at the yes. same time, if we can make fun of boomers because it makes them really mad, that gets really funny. Yes, the boomers who are rich and well off and don't, and refuse to acknowledge their good luck, you know, those people should be annoyed, and we yes. it is our job as young people to piss them off. That's fine, but yes, hopefully by the end of the, this book, certainly <laughs> I am reaching a point where I'm sort of saying. Guys, it's all class. There are boomers who are, yep. who are homeless. There are millennials who have more wealth than anybody else in human history. Hmm. Clearly, you know, whether you're a boomer or a zuba or an alpha or whatever, if you're poor, you're fucked. If you're rich, you're fine. Um, and it is a, in the same way, it's not our fault that we were born at a certain time when all this shit was hmm. coming down the pipeline. It's not the boomers' fault that they were born into probably, you know, the sweetest spot in in history. when When Western capitalism was in this sort of more tamed version in which mm. labor and like that is organized labor and the government had far more control over capital. Right. And that, that meant that ordinary people benefited way more. And you had this massive rising living standards and, um, and union and worker power. There was just this sweet spot in which, in which boomers were born into that time, Mm. and they just did exactly what anyone would do, any rational person would do, trying to live a good life during that time. That luck just has Mm. managed to carry over because they managed to build up all these assets in that sweet spot before everything went to shit. Pulled up the drawbridge
0: of free education. (laughs) Yes. Bye. (laughs) Yes.
2: (laughs) I mean, there is some good evidence that boomers in particular have sort of, you know, are extremely willing to reject the idea that wealth should be redistributed and taxes shouldn't be paid. And the incredible tax breaks that boomers have and the way they react to any kind of mildly redistributive program mm-hmm. is kind of annoying. But, um, of course, there are lots of great boomers. Boomers are not the enemy. The enemy is the ruling class, <laughs> who just happens to be made up of a lot of boomers.
0: Uh, and you mentioned before uh, Serious Danger. This is your... Tell... Uh, with uh, Emerald Moon, this is an unofficial Greens podcast. What? How exactly did this come about and how... <laughs> How unofficial is it? Is it a wink-wink, unofficial, <laughs> <laughs> like... It
2: is... It we're, is f- unofficial we're just fans. For their sake. <laughs> <laughs> it is an unofficial Greens Party podcast. It was... You know, I joined the Greens in 2020 when everything was going mm-hmm. crazy with the pandemic. And I was like, I got to, sh- you know, shit or get off the pot here and actually do something. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of critiques to be made of the Greens. Still got a long way to go, et cetera, et cetera. But at least listening to their policies and seeing their MPs do stuff doesn't make me want to stab myself in the eye with a pen. So I thought that's a probably a good start. joined as a member and thought, well... The skills that I have, such as they are, is probably just, you know, doing podcasting, popularizing Greens ideas and taking the Greens seriously, which you do not get in mainstream media whatsoever. So if we had a podcast that was open to the idea that the Greens are good, (laughs) you could actually countenance that and examine them and talk about Greens politics in a way. I thought that would be cool. So it's kind of like um, Pod Save America, but not neoliberal and awful was the general idea a a, a podcast that is still independent clearly partisan in a way wants this particular party to go well um then that that was the dream the green we collaborated with the greens party a little bit to set the thing up and we sort of had a close working relationship but we are an unofficial party podcast both for their sake and for ours we get to say whatever we want they don't have you know they don't have to say oh yeah you know, Ballard and Moon said something crazy on this podcast. What do you, the Greens Party, have to say about that? They can say, well, that's that's not our official party podcast. So,
0: yeah, That's true. And you don't have to run all these scripts by them like you used to have to, like the ABC lawyers or whatever.
2: Jesus, God. No, <laughs> no that would be a nightmare.
0: Yeah. Uh, all righty. Uh, now, it's uh, five years this month since Tonightly debuted. So, I have to ask, you had this great rant in the last episode encouraging the ABC to keep making uh, shows for young people. Uh, how do you think, frankly, with Fran Kelly is going? Isn't this the show that Zoomers and Millennials have been begging for? <laughs> Finally, I a, any a, of it. A, a youth-based Tonight Show back on the ABC. It's about time. <laughs> have you watched it? I haven't watched any of it. I, I, I couldn't stand it. I got three minutes into it. I was like, "Who wanted this?" Fran's great. She's a great interviewer. But I'm like, she is great. Who yes, wanted this that was show? Annoying.
2: Too. It's like, yeah, you can critique the decision to commission the show while also thinking that Frank Kelly's fine and it's not yes. ageism, as Patricia Carvelis was trying to argue. I thought that was a little bit bizarre.
0: But but at the same Look, time, I the do- ABC hasn't made anything much for young people since tonight finished, really.
2: No, sure. And if that's your critique, that was the annoying thing about the Patricia Carvela thing. It's like if right, your critique right, right. is the ABC is not catering mm-hmm. to a certain demographic, then you can't just dismiss this as ageism because we're yes. criticising the fact that they're booking a show hosted by a, a woman in her 50s. That's just another example of mm-hmm. the broadcaster not catering to this certain demographic. Mm-hmm. But don't you also think it's complicated by the fact that Young people are not watching free to air television anyway, and it's a bit like oh chicken in the egg. If they if if they had stuff like I'm not watching anything on free to air at Friday night at a certain time. True. I'm not watching anything at a certain time. I'm watching mm-hmm. it whatever the hell I want. Mm-hmm. And I think Will Anderson makes the point that well in that case you should make something that's just for iView or you should build up their Social YouTube media. audience or you should yeah there's an easy way to make those kind of shows. Which is again really what tonightly was supposed what to be. What tonightly at, did? We got time.
0: millions and mi- our, our stupid uh, Turnbull joke thing got a. million million. million views that we made in a day like it's crazy it was was crazy it was all i know it was social media first and we got axed because of the tv ratings like what the hell the tv (laughs) ratings,
2: which didn't make sense and look we could have done that whole thing and been like don't worry about a free-to-air show yeah just make these clips um and and put them out there which the feed
0: does great the feed does great yeah
2: sure yeah yeah totally so (laughs) look i'm a little yeah I, I, I just I see that debate playing out and I go I completely understand the frustration and the ABC does need to do a lot better it does need some fresh ideas and some fresh phases that's for sure but I'm also guess like yeah I just to what ex- there is a point at which ABC says well this is our audience these are the people who are watching this show watching this channel yes it makes you understand why they say okay we should yeah, cater yeah, to yeah the average
0: there. ABC but, one viewer is 65 this is a show for them right. perfect yeah sure <laughs>
2: So, and it is a real shame that ABC Comedy just fucked off immediately. But, but also, I think you know, you and I know, behind the scenes, at the time when Tonightly was on, was a very chaotic time at the ABC mm-hmm. structurally. leads, and the people the people who commissioned our show weren't there by the time we left, and yep. everyone had very competing visions for how the channel was going to go and what the show was mm-hmm. about and what they wanted yep. and yep. stuff. So, it was the more I think about that, it was just a, a fucking insane time in, in all of our <laughs> lives. But I'm enjoying all this like appreciation for Tonightly coming through. People going, "Yeah, Tonightly was great," and Tonightly was was taken off too early. That's all quite quite nice to be reminded. There were some people watched it and liked what we did. Well,
0: um, all right, great catching up. Uh, now the full title of the book again, because I had the wrong one because I Googled an old press release. I'm a millennial. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I have one snowflakes screed against boomers, billionaires and everything else. It is out on November 30. I did record the audiobook too. If people would rather just listen to me, read it to you, um, then that will also be available and you can pre-order it now, uh, all the places where you can pre-order books. Um, and I'll be plugging this more on social media, but close to the date, November 30th, we'll be doing launch events in Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane. So, if people want to come along and see me live, chatting to it to interesting people about the book, that'd be great.
0: Great, everyone, check it out. Thoroughly enjoyable, very intelligent, very well researched. A, an absolute journey of how we got to where we are. And uh, I just want to <laughs> were say, you
2: depressed. I know you're only halfway through, but were you depressed? Uh, not
0: depressed. Not depressed. I kind of want my parents' generation to read it. Is what I what yeah, okay. I want. I'm like, read this. This is where. This is yeah. what you've done to us. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Um, All right. Yes. Yeah. Well, yes, it's, it's both the perfect gift for the millennial in your life or <laughs> if you're a millennial and you want to, yes, make your case to the boomers, then uh, then it's... buy the book. Either <laughs> yes. way, buy the book.
0: Absolutely. No, I encourage everyone great summer read. And millennials are entering their 40s now, so sure the next book will be about lower back pain, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> That'll be the next big issue affecting millennials. I don't know.
2: It'll be us complaining about young people and saying, "No, actually we do. We deserve the investment properties that we finally managed to buy." So that fuck these young kids. Exactly. All
0: right, Cheers. thanks Tom. Thanks. Thanks so much for all your time. Brilliant.
2: Thanks, Dil. Cheers, mates.
0: Alrighty, that's News Fighters for today. Thanks for listening, and a big thank you to old mate Tom Ballard for stopping by to talk about his new book, iMillennial. Check it out wherever books are sold. And a big thank you to everyone who's supporting us on Patreon. Our latest bonus episode is out, where I talk all about new British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and pay tribute, a big video farewell tribute, to departing New South Wales Health Minister Brad Hazard, also known as the Victim Blamer-in-Chief on this show. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on YouTube at youtube.com slash newsfighters and on your podcasting app of choice. We're also on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at... Newsfighters Pod. We need your help to keep the show going. Uh, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com/newsfighters, or you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com/newsfighters. And to hear about uh, all the new developments that are going to be happening uh, next year with the show, please sign up to our free newsletter at Newsfighters. And don't forget, you can uh, write us a review on Spotify or Apple or tell your friends. And all these links are in the show notes. Uh, That's it. Keep fighting and bye for now.
1: This is News Fighters, where we fight the news so you don't
0: have to. Tom, how did these lions get out?
1: Hi.